I'm Melanie Sayward and you are tuning in to The Pink Elephant. Hi there and welcome to the final episode of The Pink Elephant podcast for season three. It has been my delight to do this podcast this year. We've had some great guests on and we've delved into some critical topics And so just as you've come to expect, just as the tradition I have started in this final episode for the season, we're going to talk about some statements I think we could do without in the Christian world. I always like to consider this theme from different angles. And so this year I wanted to look at statements that are infused with guilt, fear and shame as their motivator. Because unfortunately, we have some statements that we use to guilt, shame and fear people into change or action. The reason I do this type of episode every year is because there are these catchphrases that exist in the Christian world that we often believe without question. We even use them in common conversation, increasing the likelihood that these catchphrases will catch on. There is always some truth in these statements, but rarely do they give us the full truth found in Scripture. Over the years, in this final episode, I've examined statements like blessed to be a blessing or God is in control. Again, there is an element of truth to these statements, but to take it at face value paints a one-sided picture. It's an oversimplification of a biblical idea. So what have I got for you this year? What might be some guilt, fear, or shame-based statements in the body of Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. The first statement that I have probably heard more since COVID than previously is this one. Don't expect your kids to love Jesus if you come to church once a month. Now, in all honesty, there are variations on this one. So you might have heard it slightly different. You know, if you don't come to church regularly or... Yes, something along those lines, right? You get the basic idea. The basic idea is this, that your children's love for Jesus depends on your church commitment. Now, here's the truth part of this statement. It is more likely that your children will love God if they are having exposure to God, which happens via your own modeling of a relationship with God through their observation of other believers and through church. But there are definitely some anomalies to this statement. There are entire communities that haven't been allowed to have church because of persecution or for people in remote locations. It's just an impossibility. And yet their kids are Christian. So even if this statement is partly true, there seems to be some exceptions to this rule. But this statement is firstly an oversimplification that I think has been created as a validation for those who A, attend church, or B, lead churches, rather than something that is well thought through. Worse yet, it completely relies on a person's fear of their children's salvation to motivate them into action. So here's the presumptions that underlie this statement that we could do without. The first one is this. It presumes that every church is genuinely exposing its members to God. The average pastor is completely well-intentioned and desires to draw people into a relationship with God. But there are some pastors out there that, let's face it, may have started out with that, but somewhere along the line, something changed. They spend more time talking about how bad everyone else is and very little time about God himself. 
They talk about how bad Christians are or they just rant about something that's got nothing to do with leading people to love God and consequently live for God. The point is, not all churches are equal and simply saying that attendance is the greatest contribution to salvation is oversimplified. I would go so far to say that there are some churches that might actually be contributing to leading people away from Christ because if a church is more caught up with religion, there's a good chance they aren't producing followers. Believers maybe, but not followers. The second presumption, it presumes that parents are the most critical component to faith. Okay, here's the thing. Parents are a critical component to the development of faith, but they are not the only to a child's faith journey. And I'll show you how. I know many parents who have had two kids that are absolutely on fire for God and one kid who is not. Or it's three kids who love God and one who doesn't. The point is the children of those families received largely the same kind of parenting. They were taught about Jesus, they prayed with each other, they had generous and caring parents, and most of all, they religiously attended church. So how do we explain that? Yes, parents, there is a lot that we can do to help our kids find Jesus. Even scripture tells us that. But parenting is not the only influence. If it was, there would be no parents upset right now about the status of their kids' faith. The friends our kids choose affect their relationship with God too. Their experiences affect their relationship with God. Their experiences of church affect their relationship with God. And the Bible also supports the idea that the parent is not wholly solely responsible for their kids' abandonment of faith. Okay, now I know you guys are freaking out because you all remember that verse in Proverbs, which I must say is probably one of the most confusing verses that people quote in the Bible. It's not actually straightforward. It's definitely not straightforward how we've interpreted it. I'm getting slightly distracted here. Let me get back to this, right? The father of the prodigal son. Let's talk about him for a second. The father of the prodigal son was perfect because he represents God. And yet the prodigal son still ran. The prodigal son still made mistakes. Yes, he eventually comes back, but it still doesn't change that even the Israelites did not follow God and opted for other gods despite what they knew about him. It is possible to get distracted, to have other idols, and that's not necessarily because of the experience of parenting that those children have. It is possible to get distracted, to have other idols, and that's not necessarily on the parents. The third presumption, it presumes that fear is an effective motivator, that it will last. Now, the irony of this one is that if we degrade ourselves to using fear to motivate people into obedience, fear will also be the thing that motivates them into disobedience. Take, for example, COVID. There was a long time there where people still didn't attend church, even though the lockdown was lifted because of fear. Many got frustrated by that, leaders especially. But should we not be surprised about that? If we are engaging people through fear, all it takes is another thing to come along that they fear more to take precedence. 
The truth is we want people to make decisions out of conviction, not fear, not guilt or shame. People who respond to a fear-based motivator will be led by fear always, not pastors, not ministers and not leaders, no matter how good our rhetoric is. Furthermore, motivating people with fear doesn't last. They aren't going to stick with something out of fear. The minute they don't feel afraid again, they'll go back to what they want. Fear is not a great motivator. The truth is there is a ton of hurt parents out there who religiously took their kids to church and those kids are no longer Christian. Publicizing a comment like this causes these very faithful Christians to feel shame whilst motivating younger parents with the wrong motivation. We don't want parents to be driven by fear. They won't be able to discern the truth of God for their kids when fear is in the way. Do I think parents should still take kids to church? I definitely still think that parents should have their children participating in a faith community, but not as a religious law and certainly not out of fear. All right, the second statement we could do without. There's safety in the will of God. The idea with this statement is that if you do what God wants you to, that you'll be safe. Unfortunately, it couldn't be more untrue. We have story after story of people in the Bible who followed God and his will for their life that ended up in the hardest and the most unsafe of situations, at least from our human perspective, right? Hosea ends up with an unfaithful wife. Jeremiah cops plenty of physical abuse. Paul walks right into Jerusalem knowing that he will be captured. Moses leads the whining Israelite people for 40 years in a desert. And how could we forget Job, who just experiences severe pain and suffering for being a righteous man? I definitely have had more challenge for having followed God's plan than if I stayed put in my comfortable job in corporate safety with a nice fat paycheck. See, the best reason to live out God's will is because you are genuinely surrendering your life as an offering for him to work through you in this life as he chooses, whether that is in tough situations or easy ones. Now, the only way in which this statement seems to have some truth is the idea that you are more safe overall if you're not ticking God off. But I've seen some people prescribe to this statement with such fear that it's hard to believe that they see God as loving and gracious at all. God is far more patient than we give him credit for. We theoretically could stuff up the will of God by sheer ignorance. Do we anticipate that God will punish us for this? Despite what the perception of the Old Testament can give us, the truth is that God extends love, trust and mercy far more frequently than he punishes. Punishment is a last resort. His desire is not to watch intently how we step out of line, but to watch intently that we are trying. The problem with this statement is that the underlying motivator for doing God's will is protection. It can be motivated by the fear of making a mistake or an attempt to prevent difficult circumstances. 
But ultimately, self-protection can have no real difference to self-preservation. And self-preservation by nature is a completely selfish act. We do it because we are trying to save ourselves. It's selfish. Whether it be to preserve our actual life or our reputation, neither of these things come from holy places. Now, I'm not saying it's bad to want to protect ourselves. I don't want to be hurt either. But it certainly can be fear that motivates the desire to protect. The harder truth to digest is that the Bible is fairly clear that we are guaranteed to have difficult circumstances. The Bible calls them trials and the testing of our faith. Yeah, disobeying God when he has made his will clear to you is not wise. But obey him because of relationship, not fear. The third statement that we could do without is this one. We're not doing enough or I'm not doing enough. Now, interestingly, as a statement, this is often more internalized than spoken out. Like it's not really something I hear people saying, but I kind of know intuitively that people think this a lot because it comes out in other ways. Many of us believe this to be true. We believe that we are not doing enough. There is so much poverty and there are so many people who have not heard the gospel. There are so many missionaries in need that we feel overwhelmed and and consequently surmise that we simply aren't doing enough. And maybe this is partly true. And again, this is like what I'm bringing these points up for. There is like a, a portion of truth to everything, every catchphrase we have. You know, I've thought this often Is this all you really want me to do right now, God? Make podcasts and study and work? Surely this isn't the best use of my limited days here on earth. Well, when we make this comment, we might be 100% inspired by real circumstances that move our heart, but the problem with the statement itself is that it can indicate an undertone of unworthiness, which is a shame-based motivator. We are most likely to make this statement when we see the greatness of God and are dissatisfied with the level of input and response we think he is owed. Now, here's the amazing thing about God. God doesn't make his appeal for our service via entitlement. It's not because he thinks we owe him that he asks us to serve. Yes, surely there is a debt that has been paid, but his forgiveness is isn't given to then demand a new debt be paid. For example, the debt of salvation. I mean, he could if he wanted to, and surely he would have the right to. But by virtue of being perfect, of having a perfect love that is incapable of sinning or being self-seeking, he actually can't, or maybe he doesn't. He is unable to because it's not in his nature to. His appeal to us to serve him is through love, worship, and adoration. So yes, in reality, we probably all aren't doing enough because there really isn't enough that could be done in this world to repay the debt he paid for us. But he isn't asking us to repay it. The need to work for our salvation is no longer required And this statement can be a subtle remnant of a works-based faith that may still be present in our lives. The one and only response that God asks us to have is worship, not obligatory service. The fourth one. So this one's a little bit of an interesting one. This is the statement. 
We're in the end times. This statement has been shared far more in this COVID and post-COVID time that I sort of feel compelled to talk about it. This statement has evidently already achieved much in infusing fear in the people of God. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be aware, nor am I saying we should dismiss this thought. I've had plenty that God has said to me in these recent times about the end times. But the kind of readiness that God has always intended for us to have is not really the kind of readiness that is often happening or being talked about. The Lord wants a bride who is unblemished, not a fearful community that's absconding and packing their bunkers. Now, let's just talk about the theology of this idea for a second. Firstly, if we consider scripture, we've already been in the end times for quite some time. The people in the early church considered that they were in the end times then. We are no more or less in the end times because of COVID or Donald Trump. We were in the end times before any of that happened. Are the end times closer than before? Here's what I'll say. Jesus returning is closer than it was yesterday. But with every passing day, it certainly does get closer than it was. That's how the passing of time works. Okay, I am being a little bit cheeky, but yes, we are closer. But, and here is the big point that I am often confused as to how believers got here. The end times is not something we are meant to fear. Yes, we are not in control of what will happen when these events begin to unfold. But for those of us in Christ, which I would say would be every person listening to this podcast, we will be taken care of. We might have things we go through. It may be really hard and we might experience persecution and suffering. But the Bible never tells us to avoid that. In fact, it calls us blessed for enduring such things. If Christians should be worried about anything in these coming end times, it's not whether you will have a place to run to or whether you get hurt. We ought to be more concerned and preoccupied with the state of our hearts. Can we really be sure that we love God more than life? Are we sure that we haven't been following false prophets? Because I tell you what a false prophet would do, they'd encourage you to be afraid about the end times so that you're distracted by a whole bunch of things you can't control instead of the deep faith that God has been trying to develop in you. They'll have you consumed with signs and signals of the coming of Jesus instead of teaching you how to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing from day to day. I'm not afraid of the end times. Though God shows me things most nights in my dreams, warning me of what is to come, I don't lie in fear because God's will coming to pass is exactly what I want. Well, that's the end of the Pink Elephant podcast for this year. The first episode for season four will be landing on the 20th of February, 2024. As always, I pray that you will experience deep rest in the security of our Father's presence, that you will continue to grow and experience a faith that sustains you, that you will discover the incredible raw power of this gospel that saves, that energizes, that administers peace and joy. To walk out the life of faith that God has always intended for you. I promise I have already got many great episodes in the pipeline for 2024. I'm particularly looking forward to a few guests that I have lined up. I am so, so, so excited for that. But until then, 
Blessings and peace to you. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Pink Elephant. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or you can check out my resources on my website, meljsayward.com.